Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I like to have guests introduce themselves. Could you share a bit about yourself? So my name is R.C. Woodmass. I'm 34 years old. I live in Montreal in Quebec, Canada, which is the unceded territory of the Mohawks. And the place is called Jojake. So um, that's kind of my situation in terms of land. I am queer. I'm a lesbian. I'm non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. And I live in a beautiful apartment that I just moved into with my girlfriend. My girlfriend does writing for video games, which is very fun. I'm not so much of a gamer, but she has like her whole setup in the house. And I get to kind of watch it as though I were watching a movie. So that's kind of cool. (laughs) I have, we have two cats together. Uh, We each brought one cat to the relationship. (laughs) My cat's name is Dee Dee, and she's a little bit of a bee. The other cat's name is Mouse because she's scared of everything. And um, yeah, it's summer here. It's hot. It's green. Uh, We had some rain this morning. And I'm sitting here at my desk surrounded by all my books, which are color coded. That was a Great introduction. First, congrats on <laughs> on moving to the new place with your partner and the color coded books is so funny that you bring that up. I don't know if you're active on Twitter, but right now on Twitter, it's a hot topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've only ever received positive comments about it from folks that come into the house. I know it's definitely kind of a designer thing to do. <laughs> but it's it's kind of neat because because I just moved in with my partner, I had double the books to color coordinate. So it was really a pleasure. I really enjoy that kind of thing. I just realized I forgot to mention what I do for work, which is I'm the founder of Queer It, which is a digital marketing agency. And we're a queer feminist anti-capitalist agency, which means all sorts of things, which I'm sure we can get into later. Or if we don't cover it and you're curious, your listeners are curious about what that all means, then they can definitely reach out to me. I love the description of your agency and the feminist, queer, anti-capitalist agency. Like, what a great introduction to what your values are, like right at the forefront of the introduction of your business. It's on your website. Could you talk about that more? Like, I feel like a lot of companies have that page on their website of like their values, but yours are like literally the first things that you read, which I really, really appreciate. What went into the decision to do that? And do you get like better clients because of it? (laughs) Yeah, um, what went into it? Probably a lot of sleepless nights. 
I, uh, I definitely am the sort of person that's very values driven. And I think a lot of millennials slash elder millennials, like I am, are that way. And for me, the honestly, the most exciting part of entrepreneurship is not necessarily the work that I'm doing in terms of what is the physical thing I'm doing to make money. But the exciting part is innovating on the level of business and of economics um, and of, of ethics, because really that's what I feel needs to happen. And I think there's a lot of fear from a lot of businesses that are very profit forward, that, you know, there's fear that if they put their values forward, they might lose some of their profits. And for me, for better or for worse, Queer It is not as much about money for me as it is about those values and just using that space to innovate. And specifically to reappropriate resources for queer and trans people to thrive, which I see as kind of like a harm reduction approach to anti-capitalism, <laughs> because ultimately an anti-capitalist or a non-capitalist world would look very different than the one we have now. But the reality is we have to live, we have to thrive, and no, it's not benefiting anyone if we are all living in poverty as, as queer and trans people. So that's kind of the first action that I think Queer It is pretty strongly engaging in, um, is reappropriating those resources through work. Oh, I love it so much. And what kind of services does Queer It offer? And when did you start Queer It? Yeah, so we do websites usually on Squarespace or WordPress because we definitely believe that, you know, people should be able to make edits to their own websites. <laughs> it can be really frustrating if you can't. So we try to deal with those easier to, to navigate platforms. We also have some really strong designers on the roster. And so they will be hired generally for total, anything from like a little graphic design project for social media or a logo refresh to a complete brand redesign. It's very fun. We have over 200 queer and trans people on the roster. Wow. It's wild. Most of them aren't working at any given time, but the potential is there for any of those people to be able to jump on a project at any given time. So as an entrepreneur, it's been really interesting to like know that I am what slows down my business <laughs> and that the more I can like give up, you know, like, you know, redirect tasks to different folks, we can get it done faster and perhaps in the future get more clients and be able to redirect more financial resources to queer and trans people. So that's very exciting. It's been about, I would say, two and a half years now as a business that's called Queer It. Um, but prior to that, there was a whole lot of iterations of a business that was mainly just me building websites. You know, I don't know. It's been it's been a whole journey. But two and a half years in general is is what I usually tell people. <laughs> when you were forming queer it was there did you already have the sense of bringing on this like roster of queer designers to help work on projects or did you just start like freelancing and then connecting with other queer designers and developers and creators to sort of like and sort of like this happened organically I definitely made the decision explicitly to hire queer and trans folks and now more and more it's actually expanding into really anyone who is underrepresented 
in society or in the industry. And I know that I'm not the only one doing that. I know explicitly there's this organization that is called Where Are All the Black Designers? And I follow them and I really appreciate their work as well. It's interesting as a white person to be saying, you know, to be, I I do as much as I can in terms of anti-racist work on myself, especially using the tools that have been outlined in Radical Dharma from Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Blamarad Owens, and um, Dr. Jasmine Saidula. It's like, trying to, to kind of expand from just with my lane, which is hiring queer and trans folks, um, which may or may not be people of color, or people with disabilities, or people with various, you know, class privilege or, or underprivileged in terms of class. It's, it's a really interesting thing to try to stay honest and hire folks in a way where they don't feel like they're being tokenized. And so I think it's easier just to focus on that queer and trans kind of slice of society. But the fact is that a queer and trans space is generally a safer space for a lot of folks with other who lack other privileges. So I'm finding that it can be really helpful to open up that space. Like, I mean, as I mentioned, I think I started to answer your question, which was that it definitely was an intentional thing. I think for me, I was doing a lot of work and it felt kind of like I was banging my head against the wall, just working alone, trying to manage everything, just feeling really, yeah, just really isolated. And so I wanted to work with people and the best thing I could imagine for myself is working with other queer and trans folks. So that's kind of where that started. I was also, at the time that I started Queer It, I was the co-director, the the co-director of the Montreal chapter of Lesbians Who Tech. I don't do that anymore, but that was a really important organization for me, especially in those early days, to to feel the energy of just being with a lot of other queer and trans folks in a room and really just like seeing how amazing all of us really are. And I was also, of course, at the same time connected to a lot of lesbians and other folks that would attend the Lesbian Tech events. And so it was easy for me just to be like, oh, you're a designer. Oh, you're a developer. You know, let's just like all work together. You mentioned right at the end there, the designer developer. Do you consider yourself a designer, a developer, something in between? None of the above, all of the above, a made up word. (laughs) I think I have on my website, like designer, developer, unicorn. (laughs) Oh, oh, sorry. But it's funny because I'm kind of, so I studied opera for 10 years. So I, I started out as an opera singer. Amazing. And I was going to ask about your work history and you just really <laughs> blew me away with that one. <laughs> yeah. So I taught myself to build WordPress websites while I was singing, you know, while I would be, you know, sitting off stage, you know, waiting to go on on stage for whatever it was that I was singing, you know, and it would usually be either my own website or a fellow artist's website or the website of, you know, the opera company, or I'd help be helping them automate tasks related to um, applications or scheduling of auditions or what have you. So that's kind of where I started. Then when gender happened to me and I realized that I may not be a cis woman, I 
my personal, you know, experience was that I didn't feel like I had the energy to be able to kind of like discover myself in the context of what's generally quite a conservative art form. And there are some incredible people doing that, like non-binary sopranos or soprandros, as I know some someone calls themselves. And, <laughs> and so what I did is I was like, okay, like, what can I do then, you know, if I'm not doing what I was trained to do? And so that's kind of part of my story. And so I'm very much self-taught. So it's kind of difficult, probably because of imposter syndrome to say, oh, I'm a designer, you know, because I don't have like a design portfolio. I never worked for a design agency. It's also hard to say I'm a developer because I can do development tasks, um, but I've learned whatever I needed to learn in the moment. I never went to a boot camp, you know, I never got a degree in, in anything related to computers. So I do struggle with how to label myself. And I think that's actually a positive thing in my, it's turning into a positive thing in my career, because what I'm realizing is that I'm not alone. I can't do it alone. And that I need a community of folks with different perspectives and different skills around me, which is very much like a queer concept, a, a concept related to queerness and transness and just like that whole community aspect. And so it no longer, when you're, when I, when I used to be applying for jobs, I would be like, oh, you know, like, I wish I could just have a pure, you know, design resume or a pure developer resume or what have you. But, you know, it is, I think, I think it's definitely a positive thing to have a lot of things, a lot of skills to draw on and the ability to learn quickly, you know, for whatever's needed in the moment. Yeah, definitely. I personally, myself, when I'm like, in a hiring manager position, I'm looking for people with various experiences that can contribute to the work rather than just like a monochromatic portfolio. So um, I always appreciate it. Do you feel like there's an element of like gatekeeping in the community that that makes us feel like because I'm a designer who learned how to code and I also hesitate to call myself a developer. But do you think that outside of imposter syndrome, that might be like a symptom of gatekeeping in the development community? In the development community, I think it must be, you know. I think it's probably less related to the actual contents of your resume, or of my resume, I should say, <laughs> and more related to misogyny, sexism, transphobia, racism, etc. In my case, of course, it's not racism because I'm white, but um, I do think that development and design, you know, in any industry will automatically think that the, you know, the, the cis white man is a better candidate automatically, regardless of the contents of the resume. And so in that case, you know, my resume, if I were to apply for any job, especially development or design, would need to be 500% better than a cis white man's resume in order to be considered for the same job and be paid the same, you know, be offered the same salary. So I think the gatekeeping, I do think that if either of those industries were to actually honestly and openly examine the misogyny, sexism, racism, ableism, you know, et cetera, of their industries, I think that some of that gatekeeping might, might kind of lessen 
But, you know, it's hard because an industry is never just like, it's not like, oh, yes, let's as an industry do this because it's a combination of individuals and businesses and, you know, clients that have varying values. So it is a difficult thing for sure. I know I, I have applied to jobs and I have felt very much as though if I had, if I was better at one thing, that perhaps I would have gotten hired or they would have been more excited about me. <laughs> but, you know, my, my community needs me here with what I'm doing right now, right? And that's actually one of the reasons I think Queer It is so, it's so effective because we hire people, contractors to do jobs that they really wouldn't have otherwise done and we provide support for that. So it allows queer and trans folks to get some some real life experience working with clients. You brought up the misogyny, transphobia, queerphobia, racism, patriarchy, all the bigotries in our industry industries. How do you how do we fight those? Or to use the language that you used, how do we get the industry itself and the people in it to examine it a little bit better? That's a good question. <laughs> I do get asked that question sometimes. <laughs> Almost every time I do an interview, it's like some, some, you know, some element, some, some like that question may be framed a little bit differently. But my approach to that is that nothing has ever changed without some form of disruption. Sometimes that disruption is violence, and I'm not talking we should just go be violent to everyone. That's not what I'm saying. But what can systems that are disrupted sometimes feel like violence because whatever it is we've worked so hard to build is either the rug is pulled out from under it, you know, because it's based on some sort of bigotry, even if we didn't realize it, or, you know, we haven't examined our own um, bigotries. Um, and so what we've built is laced with it. And so it, it has, it has to come apart. You know, it has to. And so, you know, the Me Too movement is a really good example of, of something that, you know, it really, it feels really scary, you know, and people are getting called out for their behavior in such a way that you can't look away. And so I think that movements like that are very effective. And I do think that there's this, there's this job title that some people have in the world. It's it, it, this, this job that some people do, and it's called change management. And I definitely think that that is a really interesting job title to me, because what I'd like to do is kind of like, see organizations lean into their own destruction in order to rebuild in a better way. And honestly, I'm not sure if a lot of organizations are ready for that, but I do believe that that's what's going to have to happen in order for a lot of the industry and a lot of the kind of members of the industry, whether it's individuals or businesses, that's what is going to need to happen, unfortunately, you know. And I'm ready for it to happen in my business as well. You know, I'm a white person. I'm sure that there's racism built in. I'm more or less an able-bodied person. I'm sure there's ableism built in. So it's, if you're willing to change and you're willing to be disrupted 
and you're actually expecting that change and that disruption and to be torn down a couple times, I really think there's some strength in that. And I think that that's really kind of what we need to focus on as an industry is being 100% willing to change and to be kind of beaten down a little bit and torn apart and to expect it to just be like, hmm, I wonder when we're going to have our Me Too moment instead of thinking, oh, I hope this doesn't happen to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny to me that you bring up change management because I have a really close family member that works in change management. And uh, it's such a small world of, I mean, there's only so many people that do it and they have conferences. So maybe we can like all infiltrate that space and get them to, from the inside, go back to these large corporations and uh, and <laughs> pull them apart. <laughs> yeah, hit them with some radical dharma and like get them yeah. to examine their own racism and then just be like, okay, now go out into the world and <laughs> do good. Absolutely. <laughs> So on a more like practical question, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, totally. You're like, (laughs) aside from systemic change, what else do you do? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I get up, I try to do some exercise. So that could look like my very, very baby running practice. (laughs) I'm doing couch to 5K, but like I keep starting it over because it's just so hard. (laughs) But I'm trying uh riding my bike um we live right by a canal the canal la chine and so i'll usually try to do some exercise up and down the canal or yoga and then i do some meditation you know some self-examination journaling whatever it is and then basically i make myself my matcha i haven't i haven't had coffee in like almost two years Wow. Wild. That's not entirely true. Like once in a while, I'll have a decaf latte if I'm like at a cafe that doesn't have something else that I want. But at any rate, I'll make my matcha. And I generally in summer try to work outside. So um, we recently got our internet connection to actually reach all the way out to the front balcony. So I'll grab my laptop and set up um, on our front balcony and, and just start to work. I generally have client calls. Um, that could be anything from someone who wants to start a project with Queer It to someone who, um, you know, has a question about their project or what have you. Once in a while, I'll do an interview with someone that I'm considering hiring for a project, which is always very fun. Um, partially because they come into it, you know, it's a job interview. It's like kind of scary. And I'm like, so like, tell me about your life. <laughs> and it's all just very... I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like it's like your classic manager, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then around five, I usually make dinner. I'm the cook in our, our relationship. <laughs> yeah. Just try to relax in the evening, sit on the balcony again. We're just really constantly on that balcony. So that's really good. I'm part of this anti-capitalist business group um, called Business for the People, which is led by this incredible woman named Toy Smith. Um, and I joined this a few months ago and generally every week I have some sort of meeting or connection of some sort of co-working, digital co-working session with my anti-capitalist business group. And that is really a group of people that keeps me going. Um, I can bring them any of the issues that I'm facing in my business, even things that aren't issues, but things that I think might be able to be changed. I'm just not sure how because I'm definitely committed to 
every day if something needs to be changed or something could be changed to bring us farther away from capitalism, that is what is done. And so it's really helpful to have that that anti-capitalist business group to like help my day to day. Yeah, I'm extremely interested in that. And for the listeners, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because I think that everybody that is a business owner should be actively trying to dismantle the system because it it's not it's not the right way for us to live as a society as communities so i love i love that and i love that it's run and led by business owners um Mm -hmm. because a lot of business owners are criticized when they're anti-capitalist because you're playing a part in capitalism but as you mentioned before it's to make ends meet and survive in the current system not in the system that we want it to be yeah exactly there's a difference between being anti-capitalist and claiming to be non-capitalist um you can be anti-capitalist and you have like no one exists outside of capitalism no one right as far as at least in our culture maybe i need to do more studying about you know if maybe some economic systems globally you know are more outside of capitalism than we are here but yeah no it's a it's a question i get a lot about the anti-capitalism uh how can you be an anti-capitalist if you're making money or how can how do you justify asking for more money for your contractors from clients if you're anti-capitalist and i'm like that's an easy one to answer it's harm reduction we deserve to thrive and that is in itself a feminist act it may not be an anti-capitalist act but i think it is i don't know (laughs) it's harm reduction i think so too and I, i love how you worded that i think that's really great what advice do you have for someone that wants to become a designer developer just start doing it. I think a lot of folks kind of go back and forth on what they want to do, how they should start, what boot camp they should join, you know, all of that. Or they, they don't do the work because their own website isn't like perfect, for example. So they don't know if they're going to get clients. And I'm a perfectionist. So I completely understand that. But I don't see perfectionism anymore as a positive thing. I used to see it as a positive thing. Now I see it as just something that prevents me from actually doing the work. And, you know, you can design anything. You can, you know, just get, um, there are a lot of free tools out there. There are a lot of paid tools. Just pick one of them and start doing a project about something you care about. You know, there's always queer, I know there's always queer trans events and organizations that are looking for volunteer graphic designers, that's for sure. And, you know, all the tools are there online and in communities that are so eager to teach their their skill and pass that on and so my advice would definitely be to just do it because we need you especially if you have less privilege than other folks we need your perspective in the industry and we need to change this together so that would be my advice absolutely and as someone who is self-taught do you do you have any like favorite resources for when you learned how to design or develop stack exchange (laughs) um i honestly i didn't use any teaching slash learning tools to be honest i really just got good at googling um and i i just did it i i took on real life projects and just did my best and in the beginning they weren't pretty. They weren't ideal. They, you know, I got frustrated a lot, but I think my, my biggest tool was my own uh, tenacity and 
refusal to give up, even if I just couldn't figure it out. Another good tool is sleep. <laughs> it's always yeah. good if you can't figure something out, especially in development, where you just go to bed, just sleep, have a good night's sleep, wake up, and the answer will be there usually in the morning, at least when it comes to my work. That is really, really important advice. A lot of people just need to step away for a second mm-hmm. and sleep on it. Yes. Yep. Yep. What about more senior people in our field? Do you have advice for people that are senior designers, developers, designer developers? It's hard for me, actually, because I don't know that I know that many senior senior designer developers. And the reason that is, is because I think a lot of queer and trans people are seen as junior developers, you know? And uh, so a lot of the folks that are in my circles are classified as junior developers or designers. So in that light, (laughs) I would say, um, give extra attention to the folks on your team that don't seem to fit in. It's those people that we find it difficult to work with or difficult to understand that actually push us to be better designers and developers and better people. So um, giving that extra attention and and putting extra time into um, encouraging those people, regardless of who they are, honestly, regardless of their identities, anybody who's different, anybody who feels like they don't fit in, um, you know, benefits from extra time spent understanding them. And I know that if I were to enter an organization and didn't fit in, which I likely wouldn't because I use they, them pronouns, (laughs) you know, that would be something that I would hope would happen is that someone would slow down and take the time to get to know me and get to know what my perspectives bring. I I love that advice. I think a lot of senior people kind of need to hear that. Who is one person that our listeners should know about? The person I would recommend looking up and following and listening to um, is Mackenzie Mack. They are a Black non-binary person who writes and tweets and speaks a lot about leadership. And they come from a very, very rich background. Um, They do all sorts of things. (laughs) And they just, every time they open their mouth, you know, or, you know, put their fingers to their uh, keyboard or what have you. (laughs) I just, I just absolutely drink up everything that they say. So definitely look up Mackenzie Mack. Um, They don't get nearly the attention that they should. And really, I just, your, your life, if you look them up, your life will definitely be better for it. That is a ringing endorsement and they will be linked in the show notes for everybody to follow. What about reading? You mentioned Radical Dharma, I believe, is a book. What book should everyone read? Maybe you get another one if, uh, if Radical Dharma's <laughs> already been mentioned. You, you get two. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, I would definitely, definitely recommend Radical Dharma. I think everyone should read, especially if they're interested in gender and history, queer history. I'm now realizing this is an audio podcast, so it won't help me to hold up the book, which I'm doing right now. (laughs) But it's uh, Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg. It's an incredible book. It gives kind of the history of, it's it's a painful book. So just so you know, it's not light reading. 
um, but it's very, um, very poignant and it gives an idea of where the trans struggle started and where the queer struggle started and how intertwined our movements are. Because I think these days, we some of the thinking, at least in neoliberal circles is like, oh, well, gay people can marry, you know, everything's fine now. And this book really gives kind of a history of how no one's free until black trans women basically are free. <laughs> um, even though it's not about a black trans woman, it's definitely a very, very good book. And it's necessary reading to understand queer and trans struggle. And you do you did recommend Radical Dharma already. Do you mind talking a little bit about why you recommend Radical Dharma? Yes. Radical Dharma um, is a book, but it's now also kind of a movement of you can go to a Radical Dharma camp or circle or conversation led by the three authors. And the book is really written for Black people and other folks are welcome to read it, which is a very special space in my opinion, because I know these days, a lot of my friends who are people of color have a lot of difficulty um, sharing space with white people um, just because of all, all the racial trauma that lives in their bodies. Yeah, I wrote down in the, <laughs> in the front page of the book um, that Reverend Angel said, this book is not for white people, but they are welcome to it. Um, and so already that kind of gives you a sense of what it's like. It's a series of writings that give really nuanced perspectives on race from a Buddhist, a Buddhist perspective. So it talks a lot about um, Buddhist spaces, but it also just talks about just, as I mentioned, like just race, but from that Buddhist perspective, which is a really beautiful perspective. So I definitely recommend it. It changed my life and um, it's full of love and it's full of challenge. So I definitely recommend it. I'm ordering it as soon as we get off this interview, because that sounds <laughs> great. And I love when people say that one book changed their life. They're like, this book is really important to me. And um, yeah, I can't wait to read it. So I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So what we do on this show is we, the profits from our advertisers, we split across all of our, our guests of the show. What are other ways that our listeners can support you? The best way actually at the moment is to um, just follow Queerit um, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and also spread the word. So if you are in the types of circles where folks need websites, which most circles these days are those sorts of spaces, <laughs> um, definitely refer us. Um, we are booking for late fall, deadline, late fall launch dates. Um, so the summer and early fall is completely booked now. And that's, you know, I'm speaking, I guess, you know, summer 2020. So if you're listening in the future, this may not apply. I personally am actually going to be putting together a Patreon shortly, partially because a lot of the work that I do with Queerit is not considered billable hours. Um, but the work is extremely important to just do that thinking and planning and change around anti-capitalism. So I will be starting a Patreon, but if you follow Queer It or you follow me on Twitter at rwoodmath, um, then you'll you'll be able to hear about that when it happens. Fantastic. And I was going to ask where can people find you? Is Twitter your preferred um, place for people to follow you? Yeah. Uh, so me personally, it's definitely Twitter. 
my business is mostly on Instagram, actually. So um, I guess you can drop all of those links in the show notes. Um, but if you're following us on social media, it's Queer It Co, all one word, on all of the platforms that, that we're on. Um, and then for me, it's R Woodmas. Will definitely be linked in the show notes. RC, thank you so much for being on Bezier. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Just a lot of gratitude for all the people that came before me. So, you know, my mother, my grandmother, my whole lineage going back to, you know, England in my case, and then all the folks that I learned from and that I consider peers and elders, and especially um, Indigenous folks whose land I'm living on. I just have a lot of gratitude to all of those people. And I think it's really important to name that because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all of the folks that are constantly just like supporting me from behind and pushing me forward. So thank you. I love that. And I love that you do the land acknowledgement at the beginning of this interview. That was such a great setting for us. And I really appreciate you acknowledging it. And I, I recently saw it happen at start happening at conferences. So it's great that to see, to see people like you just doing it when they can. Mm -hmm. It's the least we can do literally. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard, I will say just quickly is I did hear of um, a woman uh, either. I think she was in Canada and she is starting the process to legally sign her land back to the indigenous nation that originally occupied that land and so just to throw that out there for anyone who hears a land acknowledgement it's like you can give your land back just saying (laughs) i love that and i think that that is a way that large businesses could be anti-capitalist too because lots of large businesses have privately owned land so they're Mm -hmm. it's within their power to do that and i um that is inspirational i like that a lot Absolutely. Right. Imagine, imagine the future. It could be so beautiful. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Bezier is a design interview podcast, amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.